This I recall to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. If you've got your Bibles with you this morning, let me invite you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 19. Uh, this week, as opposed to a couple of weeks prior to this now, uh, the passage is printed in your bulletin. It is a long one, but not quite as long as the last couple of weeks. So we did include it in the bulletin this morning. If you want to use the blue Bibles, it's on page 271 of the uh, Blue Bibles. Uh, if you are visiting with us today, it's your first time you've dropped in uh, for a visit. We are working through uh, the biblical book of 2 Samuel in our sermons. Uh, it's not easy. Uh, it, there's, there's difficult matters at hand before us, but we continue to press on and to set the stage for what I am about to read to us. A, mind, a reminder then of what took place last week. Last week, what we saw was the battle between the forces uh, behind Absalom, uh, the false king, and David, the true king. And we saw that the forces of David prevailed over the forces of Absalom. For David, it was a victory, but it was, in fact, a bittersweet victory. The victory was sweet in the sense that he was now going to be restored rightfully as the king uh, and returned to Jerusalem. Uh, but it was a bitter victory, of course, because of the death of his son. And as the chapter that I'm reading for us now began, uh, it begins with uh, David continuing his weeping, his wailing, his lament for the loss of this son when at that point Joab comes to him and says, David, you have to stop this wailing because what you're doing is showing a disdain for myself, for those of us who have gone out and fought for you in this battle. And so Joab persuades David that as much as his grief might be, it's not appropriate in this situation. And don't take Joab's at face value, even though there might be some wisdom in what he's saying. But in any case, David hears Joab enough to say, okay. And in uh, the verse right before what I'm about to read for us, David goes out to the gate of the city where the king should be. And at that point, all of the people, all of the troops who were involved in this begin coming to David. Presumably, uh, David thanks them for their service and for what they have rendered on behalf of their king. Chapter 19, the rest of it that I'm about to read for us now, then uh, begins to describe for us the return of the king with a nod to Tolkien. Uh, this is the process of the return of the king. And as David is making his way back towards Jerusalem, there are a series of interactions, a series of people that come to him, and it's very parallel. In fact, it's the reverse of what we saw when he was leaving Jerusalem. So many of the exact same people that we saw on the way out, now also we see as David is preparing to return to Jerusalem. Let me read them for us, this text. This is the living word of the living God. I'm actually starting where you're... Uh, Bible probably has a break listed there in the middle of verse 8. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. 
And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, that's the first time we read that. That was a bad idea to anoint Absalom over them. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent his messengers, message, this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not bone, uh, my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all of the men of Judah and of all of the men of Judah as one man. So they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. And Shimei, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite from Behurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gerah, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all, the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord, the king. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? Or do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me, for your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. 
And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. Now Barzillai, the Gileadite, had come down from Regalim, and he went on to the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord, the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return, that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant Chimham. Let him go over with my lord the king and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me and I will do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over, and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him. All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the great high king. You are our Lord and our King, and it is our privilege as your people to be united here together at your calling, at your summoning as the great King. We rejoice in you, we celebrate you, we exalt you, our King, and we pray that today as we look at these texts that we would understand more about you and about our approach to you. We pray this in your name, our Lord and King. Amen. How do we meet the king? How do we greet the king? What are the protocols? What is the posture that we are to take before the king? As important is another set of questions, and that revolves around the king. How does the king meet us? How does the king greet us? What is the disposition of the king towards us as we approach? Because that might impact significantly the way that we approach the king. Especially, what would be his disposition towards us, towards him as he is the king returned, if in fact we have been unfaithful and rebellious as his servants? That's the question that everybody in this passage, or those are the questions that everybody in this passage is struggling with. David is returning as the king. What's his disposition? How do I greet him? How is he going to meet me, given what has taken place over the last, we'll call it several weeks, 
since he has been dri driven out of Jerusalem. I have tried uh, over the weeks to show us the relationship between what is taking place here in 2 Samuel and the story of Jesus, who is the son of David the Christ, which is to say Jesus is the anointed king, the son of David. And as we've looked at it, we've been able to see things that are parallels between the life of David and the life of Christ. And sometimes in the story itself, we've kind of seen things set in contrast to what took place in the life of Christ. A, a kind of relief of it, a, a negative or a reversed image is given to us in this portion of scripture that helps us to understand what Christ did in his life as well. Think about it this way. Sometimes when we think about the prophetic word of God, prophecy in scripture, we think about words that are spoken in the Old Testament referring to something about Jesus or about his life in the New Testament. And we've seen that in the book of 2 Samuel already. Think, for example, of 2 Samuel chapter 7, wherein David is promised that he will have a son who will sit on his throne, who will reign forever from that throne. That's a prophetic word given by Nathan the prophet from the Lord to David. It's a prophetic word that will take place. But in addition to that, prophecy can also take place in the Word of God through the events themselves. Through what is actually happening, we are enabled to see what will be fulfilled in Christ in a supreme way. And I have tried to show us that this as we have moved through it. And this week is no different. Jesus was the king who was anointed, who was betrayed, who was taken out of the city of Jerusalem where he was hung on a cross to die for the sins of his people. Some thought it was the end. It was not. For on the third day, the king rose victorious from the dead and he returns to the city where he meets and greets. He returns to Jerusalem from which he was taken to meet and to greet. And so that's our question for today. We ask this question, how do we meet and greet the king returned? How do we meet and greet him? We're certainly not asking a question that's irrelevant and 3,000 years old. We're not just asking how did these people meet and greet David, although that's going to be the basis for us. And we're not interested in the contemporary protocols uh, in terms of how we would meet a head of state or meet and greet a monarch, although those things are fascinating and they're interesting, right? We enjoy watching sometimes and learning about what those protocols are, but that's not our question today. We're asking how we, how do we meet and greet Jesus, who lives and reigns in the heavenly Jerusalem, who not only returned to the earthly Jerusalem, but then returned to the heavenly Jerusalem, and who will come again? How do we meet and greet him? And this text is going to give us direction for that ultimate and personal pursuit that we have. How do we meet the king? All right, the text that is before us today unfolds for us in four movements, 
and we're going to work through them consecutively in just the way that they are laid out in the scripture that is before us today. So we're going to look at the first section, verses 8 through 15. And this section, it's, it's a little bit awkward. It was even awkward as I read it aloud for us. Um, it's a little bit awkward in trying to understand what is taking place here, but let me try and explain it as much as possible. It shows us the confusion and the tension that exists at this moment, at this post-rebellion, post-coup, post-battle moment. There is a simmering tension that pervades Israel's history as a monarchy. And it is the tension that we've seen already throughout this book. It's the tension uh, that exists between the North and the South, the tension that exists between Israel uh, in the North, the 10 tribes to the North, and Judah in the South. And sometimes that tension boils over. The book started with that tension existing and erupting into warfare. And that same, that same tension, that same kind of division that sometimes lays just under the surface or on the back of the stove, it's brought out in the incident that took place in this very rebellion. It flares up again. And here's the way it works. Even though this rebellion is under Absalom, and Absalom, of course, is David's son, so Absalom is not of the tribes of Israel. Absalom is, in fact, of the tribe of Judah, like his father, David. Nevertheless, Israel looks at this as an opportunity, and here I'm using Israel to refer to the north. Israel looks at this as an opportunity to perhaps get that independence that they had always craved, get the position that they had always desired, and so Israel allies itself with Absalom. So even though he's Judah, at least he's against David, and so Israel had come under Absalom in this warfare. But now they're kind of in a bind, right? They find themselves in a bind. They had allied themselves with Absalom, and let's hear their words again as they kind of, what you're listening to is a summary of, an, of a dialogue that's going on inside of Israel between these various tribes and various people. Here's the summary. The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hands of the Philistines. And that's what David had done in the past, right? David was the one who had delivered all of Israel. They recognized this. And now he has fled out of the land of Absalom, by the hand of Absalom, uh, because of Absalom. Of course, that's what had just happened. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. What do we do now? What do we do at this point? Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing back the king? And again, why do you say that they're kind of talking to each other? Shouldn't we be bringing back the king? Don't you think we should bring back the king? Isn't that the best way to get ourselves out of the bind in which we find ourselves? Shouldn't we just look at each other and say, all right, we, we should bring David back. We should acknowledge what we have done. But they're torn. Uh, David now gets word of this, and David, when he hears of this, he has a big picture in mind. He's not just interested in rushing right back to Jerusalem. Instead, he's patient. He's patient, and he's not looking to, right now, get back to Jerusalem, get back on his throne, get back to his house, so that he can execute vengeance and judgment against everybody who betrayed him in this rebellion. But David, instead, is cultivating 
the desire, not only his desire, but the desire of all the people to be once again united as the nation of Israel and to return him as king. So when he gets word of Israel's plans to bring him back, he hears that this discussion is going on in Israel, that Israel will bring him back. He turns to his own friends, to his own tribe, and says to him, guys, you're kind of slow on the draw here. You're, you're kind of slow on the draw. You are my flesh and blood. And, and he doesn't say flesh and blood, right, in, in the, the setting here. He says, you are my bone. You're my flesh. You're the ones, in particular, whom I know. You're the ones who should, in fact, bring back the king. And for those of you who were in Sunday school, just an in interesting parenthetical point here. David is speaking very personally, right? very personally, very familiarly with these folks. You are, you are my flesh and my bone, my, my, my bone. You're, you're of my stuff. We're the same folks. He's speaking very personally, but he's also sometimes speaking here in the third person about the king. You should be the ones to bring back the king. He could have said, you should be the ones to bring me back. But he can, he can recognize himself and the office as well. Those things are together, but he can also sometimes pull them apart. Sorry, and parentheses, uh, and, and back to the situation here. So he's trying to persuade Judah to lead the charge in bringing him back into Jerusalem, even though, even though, Dave would say, some of you were involved in the rebellion itself. This wasn't a rebellion in which all of Judah participated with David, obviously not his son. And there's one other person who's brought to the foreground here, obviously not Amasa, as an example. Now, Amasa isn't a name that we know right off the top of our head. Who is he? Amasa is actually one of David's nephews, a cousin of Joab, and if you recall the story, and if you recall all of this, you're on the ball. But Amasa was the one who Absalom had put as charge, as head, as lead general in his army. And so David says, let me show you how committed I am to you, Judah, by taking Amasa, who is the very one who led the rebellion, who led the forces against me and against Joab, uh, Abishai, Ittai, the Gittite, and I'm going to put him at the head of my army instead of Joab. I'm taking Joab, I'm putting him aside, and I'm establishing Amasa as my commander. That's how committed David is to peace. And so these words, these actions of David sway the heart, right? That's verse 14. Sway the heart of all the men of Judah, and they call for the return of their king, and the journey back to Jerusalem begins. All right, the next movement is in verses 16 through 23. We meet our next two characters, and we know them. Uh, Shimei and Ziba are the two that we meet here at this point. Uh, Ziba gets a little mention, and let me just do him first, uh, and then we'll move to Shimei after that. But Ziba has come here and, and comes before David to do whatever he possibly can for him. Verse 17 says that Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. Recall that Ziba was appointed by David to be Mephibosheth's steward over the lands, to be Mephibosheth's, if you will, servant, but steward is probably better here. And when David was leaving, Ziba came to David 
and supplied David, gave David supplies as he went out, and he gave David those supplies with a story. And the story was about Mephibosheth. The story was that Mephibosheth, in fact, was using this as a time to rebel against David and, and was hoping for somehow that he himself would become king instead of Absalom or instead of David. So Ziba comes down into this picture and we'll pick him up more in the next section when we hear more about Mephibosheth. But he is paired here, he comes with Shimei. And when you're paired with Shimei, you probably begin to doubt uh, the veracity of uh, Ziba. Uh, well, that's probably wise. But he's paired with Shimei. And most of this section, of course, deals with Shimei. Shimei, as you may remember, is the uh, dust-flinging, stone-throwing, uh, insult-slash-curse-hurling fellow who met David on the way out. And if you will, uh, the tables have turned a little bit the posture and the words of Shimei have turned significantly, and we read this from verse 18. And Shimei, the son of Gerah, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart for your servant, that is to say he himself knows that I've sinned. Therefore, behold, I've come this day, the first of all of the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my Lord, the King. Well, what do you think? What do you think of his approach? What do you think of the words that he has got to say here? Are you buying or selling? Buying or selling, the words of Shimei. Your King David, here's, here's this same guy, right? The same guy that was hurling all these insults. Are you buying or selling? Is this a change of heart? Uh, or is it saving your hide? Is it just political expediency that's going on here? And what else are you going to do? A few chapters back, remember this though. David had said something very similar. He said when he was confronted by Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And, and he heard these words then from Nathan, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. Now, David's confession that was very simple in 2 Samuel was amplified by David in Psalm 51. We saw that. But, but the question then becomes, as David hears this, David himself has just recently said similar words to this, or in his life has said similar words like this. The question is, is this godly grief, what the Bible calls godly grief, so is Shimei really repentant here, that he's grieved the Lord, that he's grieved his Lord, David himself, or is this what the Bible calls worldly grief? Is he just upset? Uh, just recognizing that he got caught doing something he shouldn't have been doing, and now he's just got worldly grief about it. Well, rest assured, Abishai has a way to resolve this, right? Abishai has a way to resolve this. Here's what Abishai says, can I kill him now? Can I kill him now? You wouldn't let me kill him before. You would not let me kill him on the way out. I wanted his head then. Can I kill him now? Now, Abishai, Joab's brother, the sons of Zeruiah, 
they have a way of solving most problems. And most problems that they solve are kill him. That's the answer. If, 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 there's, if anything is in doubt, kill him. That's our solution to every problem that is out there. But the king has a different disposition. And the king turns to him and says, enough of this. Enough of this. The Lord has said the sword will not depart out of my house, but nevertheless, put your sword away, is essentially what he says. The king says to one who is about to execute judgment on behalf of his king, put your sword away. No more killing. No more killing in Israel this day. The king's disposition is not one of vengeance in his heart, but he comes back with mercy. He himself is a recipient of mercy. And so he turns to Shimei and says, you shall not die. Those are the words that he had heard as well. You shall not die. You shall not die for this. I give you an oath. I give you an oath. You shall not die for what you have done. David is not all-knowing. He doesn't try to resolve the heart of this man, but he extends to him a disposition of mercy, a judgment of charity that allows him to live. So Mephibosheth arrives next, 24 through 30, and he looks terrible. He gets to David and he looks terrible and the stated reason is that instead of celebrating Absalom's rise to the throne, Mephibosheth has in fact gone into mourning. From the time that Absalom uh, arrived and David departed, Mephibosheth has been mourning David's departure. But as we've already seen throughout these books of Samuel, appearances can be deceiving. You can do a lot with appearance, and it isn't always clear what you're doing just by appearance. And so David has a question for him in verse 25. Why did you not go out with me, Mephibosheth? The, the, the folks who were loyal went out with me. Why did you not go out with me? And then we get the other side of the story, right? Ziba has been talking to us. Ziba has been lying and so Mephibosheth tells his story. He tells his version of the events. He says, no, no, no. Ziba was duplicitous with me. I wanted to come out, but I couldn't because I was lame and the donkeys went out without me. And you've been hearing stories from Ziba about my desires. They are not true. And so Mephibosheth submits himself to the judgment of the king. So what do you think? What do you think of his approach? What do you think of these words? Are you buying or selling? You're buying or selling? You're buying Ziba? Or you're buying Mephibosheth in this? Ziba could be lying, but he did in fact give provisions to David. That was significant. And in fact, he obeyed David's earlier commands with respect to how he should store and take care of the land that then David had returned to Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth could be lying. He could be lying about this. But 
David had been showing to him covenant loyalty for Jonathan's sake and killing another member or even if a former member of the royal family of Israel would not be conducive to the present cause. It wouldn't help things right now. They could both be kind of embellishing the stories, giving and telling the stories in a way that kind of shades them a little bit, that favors them a little bit, that puts the best spin possible on it. But David, the king, in response, is once again characterized by mercy. He does not take off either of their heads. He does not execute one of the two of them. Instead, he goes, okay, I've heard enough. I've, I've heard what you're saying about this. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm dividing the land. Okay, you've got half and Ziba has got half of this as well. Now let me step back for just a moment and note that this seems to me, as, as, as we look at that very section right there, to be kind of a pre-enactment, a prequel to the parable of Jesus about the wheat and the tares. Right? As Jesus told that parable, he said the kingdom of God is like a field, a, a field of wheat that is planted. But when the field of wheat is planted, up grows these tares, these weeds, in the midst of the field. And the servants say to the king, do you want us to go and rip out these weeds right now to get rid of all of the problems that are in the kingdom right now? And the master says to him, no, not right now. Because if you do it right now, then you're going to rip out some of the wheat as well. Wait for the harvest. Wait for the harvest. The time will come. The time will come for dividing between the Zebas and the Mephibosheths. That time will come. That time isn't right now. And so wait for the harvest and we'll make the division. Finally, last character that we meet, movement four, if you will, in this passage, is we meet once again uh, Barzillai the, Gileadite, the, the Gileadite. And he was the last person that we saw greeting David at the end of chapter 17 before the battle actually takes place. Let me just read again to remind you of it. Barzillai, the Gileadite from Regelim, brought beds, basins, earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds and sheep and cheese from the herd for David and the people with him to eat for they said the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Barzillai comes to David once again. This man uh, is worth his own sermon uh, and maybe one of these days I will do that. Everybody should have a friend like this man and all of us should serve our king uh, and our king's family aka the church so faithfully as this man did. Barzillai celebrates David's restoration and David in turn celebrates and honors Barzillai's loyalty. Come to Jerusalem with me. Barzillai, come to Jerusalem. In my house, in my city, there are many rooms. I'll take care of you. You, you come with me to this place where I dwell. And there the blessing will be upon you. But Barzillai is an older man. 
He's a picture for us of how to grow old well. And he politely declines the offer and instead offers, presumably, uh, his son to go in his stead. stead. And David says, all right, I'll do. And, and Barzillai says, do whatever you can for him. And, and David responds with, I'll do whatever you want me to do for him. Whatever you want is exactly what I will do for this young man. David is magnanimous in his disposition. And Barzillai then receives the true kiss and the blessing of his king. When Jesus, the anointed king, returned to Jerusalem after his victory over sin, death, and the devil, when he came back, he came back without fanfare. He came back alone, because as we have noted, he alone, he alone was the faithful son. He alone was the one who could win the victory on behalf of his people. He came back unaccompanied, and he entered the room where there were men, men who had been scattered and who scattered when he was arrested. Three men who were there, who were the closest ones to him, his, if you will, mighty men, three of whom he had said to them, keep watch and pray in his most desperate hour, and they had fallen asleep on him. And one man in that room who had denied him three times, Jesus, the king, comes into that place. What is his disposition? What is his disposition as the returning king? As the returning king coming to people who have just showed their lack of faithfulness and fidelity to him as the king? Is it vengeance? Is it rebuke? How did King Jesus, the returning King Jesus, how did he meet them? How did he greet them? What is the disposition? What are the words that he says? Peace be with you. Shalom be with you. Jesus greets them with that which he has secured by his death and his victorious resurrection. He has secured peace. He has secured reconciliation with God. Peace be with you. Spiritual and eternal peace with God. Having satisfied the just demands of the law of God for those who rebel against the king, and that was the image that we had last week. When Absalom is hung up in that tree and he's pierced, he's pierced for the sins of rebels, for his own rebellion. It is the picture of a cursing that is there. So when Jesus goes out side of Jerusalem as the king and is hung on the cross and is pierced, he is pierced, of course, not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people. He has paid for our rebellion. And so he comes to these ones, these ones who were the mightiest of the mighty that were there, and he comes to them with that which he has purchased, the demands of the law having been fulfilled, 
his disposition, the disposition of King Jesus, similar to but greater than that of King David, is a disposition of mercy and of generosity. And so the king return doesn't come in vengeance. The king return comes to distribute mercy. And so we return to our questions at the beginning. How do you greet the king returned the king who is now seated in the heavenly Jerusalem. There are pictures within pictures within pictures that are going on here. On the one hand, you've got Jesus who was taken out of the earthly Jerusalem, crucified outside of the earthly Jerusalem, comes back in to Jerusalem into the upper room. On, on, a, on a larger scale, you've got Jesus who was enthroned in heaven, the eternal son of God who comes down to earth and then goes back to the heavenly Jerusalem. How do you meet and greet this king who will also return again. If all we knew was that we had offended and betrayed the returned king of kings, the approach for us would be impossible. In fact, the only way that we can come to him is by the word of God telling us that his is a throne of grace, that his is a mercy seat, the place wherein he reigns, the place wherein he is seated in Jerusalem is a place of mercy. His is a place where sinners, where enemies, where the weak and where the ungodly come. David desired to see the reconciliation, the reunification, if you will, of the nation of Israel between the north and the south. It's not going to work. Spoiler alert, if you haven't read, there's another battle coming in the next chapter between the north and the south. It's going to flare up right again. David desired it. Jesus secured it. Jesus secured peace for the people of God. He secured reconciliation. In one sense, we all always Come like Shimei, we're the host of Israel. We come with confession and repentance and a plea for mercy, but that's only because we know the character and the disposition of the king. We know that the character and the disposition of the king is like unto the father of the prodigal son. Right? The, the, the father, it's the same imagery, right? Different idea here. That's a, that's a father-son type thing, which is the same idea, but not the king imagery that is there. But the son says, what am I doing? What am I doing out here in rebellion against my father? I'll go back there. At least I can be a servant there. And what he finds is a father full of more mercy than he could possibly have expected. And the father distributes the best on him, honors him clothes him once again. The passage is that, right? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Come to the Lord in all humility, in all truth, in all acknowledgement, in all confession, and he will not only receive you and give you mercy, he will lift you up, he will exalt you, he will say to you, you shall not die. He will give to you the rewards that are purchased by his son. Come into Jerusalem. Come into Jerusalem. Come with me. Come live in the city that I have prepared for you. Now be warned. Be warned. Jesus will return again. 
when he returns again, the sword will be drawn. It'll be out when he returns again. Judgment will be executed. Right now, the sword is sheathed. This is the time. This is the day of mercy. This is the day of grace. This is the time when those of us who have rebelled against the king can find favor by coming to the king who says, come to me, there's mercy for you. There's rest for you. There's hope for you. There's forgiveness for you. There's peace for you. There's reconciliation for you. Come. Come to the king and find it and receive from him the invitation to join him in Jerusalem and receive his kiss and his blessing. And while we wait for the return, we then the people, knowing the disposition of the king, having received the mercy of the king, say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, our king. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the mercy that you have shown to us. Lord, none of us would have come except for the fact that you made a way possible for us to come. You sent your spirit to draw us, to transform us, to come to you. And so we came and so we are thankful, Lord, for any who are here today who are fearing you, who are hiding from you, who are away from you. Lord, work in the heart so that today, even this moment, they would turn and come to you and find you to be merciful and gracious and forgiving. Lord, grant to us, grant to us all such faith that we might greet you and meet you aright. Jesus, in your name, you are our Lord and our King. We pray. Amen.